Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we conclude our mentorship journey where we help one of our listeners workshop the pilot from inception to final draft and beyond. That's right. This is the beyond. We are once again joined by Ben Warner. Welcome, Ben. <laughs> hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for being with us uh, in the afterlife. <laughs> this week is the final step in the series as we take a look at what to do once you have that pilot script. We'll discuss our own strategies and thoughts on everything from using the sample to attract wraps to using it as a staffing or selling sample and much more. So let's get started. <laughs> All right, so just wanted to recap our mentorship goal and process one last time. This has been a monthly workshop where we help a writer, one of our listeners, create a new original TV pilot script from the inception of the idea all the way through to the final draft and what to do after that. In our previous episodes, we have gone from the concept to the story beats to the outline, the rough first draft, and the revised draft of Ben's pilot, The Pirate King. And this week, we're going to be talking about what to do with it now. So that is the next steps in the strategy from here on out. That's right. And as we always say, we want this process to be as interactive as possible with everyone listening at home. If you have thoughts, feedback, et cetera, et cetera, you can always send those to ask at paperteam.co. As we close this mentorship out, we hope that you too felt inspired to work on your own projects and pilots and to see at the very least that it can be achieved in a very doable amount of time. It took us from PT 190 to PT 206 to go from Ben's initial idea to essentially a final draft or near final draft. Of course, uh, it might need a few uh, polishes and then nothing is ever final draft, but it's close enough now to get feedback from peers and to go around town potentially. And all of that process took us under five months and you could probably do it even faster without you know waiting for a podcast recording to happen. It didn't take years and years for this entire process. It only took a few months. And so that's uh, something that you yourself can do very easily as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, our goal with this has always been to basically shine a light on the process of creating a new original pilot from start to finish. I think it can be a bit of a mystifying thing for some people who are perhaps new to it or don't know all the steps that kind of go into it. And it can be a little overwhelming. So hopefully having been able to see uh, something take its journey from just an idea through to a finished pilot script on air, uh, you can be able to replicate the same thing with your own process at home. And Ben, uh, how did you feel about this process of uh, writing in uh, basically five months a whole script from idea to final draft? Well, I thought it was pretty educational and it was interesting. Like I mentioned, I think it was last time we recorded, it's not often that I get constructive feedback throughout the process. That's normally something I get when it's all said and done. Man, somebody takes a look at it and gives me some notes. So it was really cool to have you guys every step of the way to kind of point me in the right direction. That's awesome. And on that note, can you talk a bit about the latest Pirate King updates and changes that you might have made since our last episode? Yeah, not much has changed so far. One thing I've begun going through is uh, you guys had the note about taking out him being called captain, kind of saving that to be sort of the closing victory for him. Um, So it's been little things like that. I actually, I don't want to give away too much of the inside process, but there's a little bit of a delay between when we record the episodes and when, when they're released. And I like to be able to listen to the podcast while I'm making the notes. So um, yeah, I've only been able to listen to it the one time, but really this next week is probably going to be going through and, and making most of those uh, note implementation. What, I don't even know what word I just trying to say, <laughs> implementing all those notes. All right. And you also told us that you were thinking of changing the show title. So can you speak a bit about that? Yeah. The Pirate King always was just a really rough sort of working title and something I've always like to do with pilots, especially when it's 
got such a unique setting is I like to kind of reference that in the title. So the new title is Shadows of New Orleans. And it kind of, it feels like it's almost more of a, a story of New Orleans than just the story of Jean. Interesting. Well, we'll uh, surely be talking about this in our next section. So now let's talk about some strategies for the parking or formerly known as uh, the parking. The first thing we want to talk about with strategy is understanding your pilot and your material and how that fits with you and your brand. You know, a lot of people write a pilot script and they ask, well, what now? How do I get this made or get myself staffed on a show with this as a sample? It's not quite that easy, but we'll try to walk you through it. And there's a few things you need to think about first. Absolutely. Because uh, before you think about digging into what to do or how to do it and uh, approaching people to do the thing, you got to look at that piece of content that you wrote, that script, and understand how that fits with you, your portfolio, and everything. And so there are various exercises or at least questions you can ask yourself when looking at that sample. And I should note that a lot of these things that we're going to be talking about in this section can actually be done very early in the process. In fact, as early as figuring out the concept of your show. But the first thing to really dig into is positioning. In essence, why is this show different from all other shows? And uh, one easy thing to do on that note is to compare and contrast your pilot, your sample with other existing shows or scripts of similar nature. And this, in my mind, boils down to understanding your pilot's USP or unique selling proposition to borrow a business term here. In other words, what does your pilot, and uh, by extension yourself, bring to the table that no one else or no other script does. So in this example, let's talk specifically about the parking. Ben, what do you think is the difference between your pilot, your script, your show, and other similar ones or even uh, you know different ones? But let's take something like Black Sales as an example. How do you feel your show compares to other party shows of its nature? Well, I think that one of the big things that separates it is playing in that that sort of gray area we established in the pilot of is this going to tilt into the supernatural at some point? Is it already? Are there supernatural things happening? So that definitely helps set it apart from something like Black Sails, which was really grounded. There was no magic. There's nothing like that. So I think that helps set it apart. And then I just think this is sort of an interesting time period. It's, you know, again, going back to the Black Sails thing, that was very much the golden age of piracy, which was about 100 years before, that really ended like 100 years before when we're looking at in uh, Shadows of New Orleans. So I think it's just an interesting time period as well that you, you don't see as often in this kind of context. Yeah, it's interesting when you're kind of comparing your material to other shows and figuring out how to kind of market it. You're often threading this needle between, well, it's like this show, so it's familiar and proven to already be successful, but it's also different enough that it's new and fresh and people won't be uh, already bored of it or think that somebody's already done this before. So it's a fine that tightrope to walk sometimes. Absolutely. And uh, this is the classic thing of saying, oh, it's uh, this meets that. And the reason why that is in part so effective, at least to convey the idea of why your show is different, is because usually when you compare, you say it's X meets Y, the X and Y are not necessarily the same types of shows. They might be about similar themes or similar values or maybe similar tones, but they're not necessarily about the same topic. So it would be interesting to think about, for example, this show, if, it's, if you could think it's Black Sales meets something else, if that would be applicable at all uh, to easily get a shorthand of understanding what the Pirate King is about. Yeah, I mean, I think even pretty early on, as early as our first concept episode, it's kind of had that feeling of it's Black Sails meets Breaking Bad. But it's not the comparison with Breaking Bad is, is a little hard because it is, like we said, it's sort of the opposite of Breaking Bad. We're like, we're watching Walt's journey in reverse. 
but the idea of like building the empire and is kind of there still. Yeah, and I find the the point that you just hit here fascinating. The fact that in your pitch, you're basically saying it's breaking good in a way. It's not breaking bad. It's breaking good. Where the journey of that lead character is the opposite of breaking bad. And so, if you frame it as you know, it's breaking good, but the pirate version of that, essentially, I feel like it, you can uh, get a lot across in a very short amount of time. Yeah, definitely. And I think that when it comes to these X meets Y comparisons. There are usually sort of trends that go through the town and things that just become oversaid to the point of a trope for a while it was it's yeah, for a while it was breaking bad. It was sort of like, you know, it's it's blah 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 meets breaking bad, or for a while it was it's this meets stranger things. And so people often get a little bit uh, kind of tired of hearing those particular comparisons. But I, I like the way that you've kind of taken the breaking bad structure and reframed it to, you know, be breaking good. I think that that puts enough of an original spin on it. And it's also been long enough since breaking bad that everyone's not sick of hearing this is the next breaking bad, you know. Yeah, I definitely agree. I will also mention just real quick that the exercises and questions that we're doing here are not necessarily going to be one-to-one what you're going to be saying to people pitching. This is, at least initially, to better understand your own pilot, how it fits within the economy of the entertainment industry, how it fits within you know the portfolio of shows that are on the air or have been on the air and, and people's references within that. And Breaking Bad was often used as an example because it was a very popular show that broke a lot of grounds. And so trying to use that as a reference is an easy shorthand. That's why people say, you know, it's X meets uh, Breaking Bad, for example. But it's not necessarily, you know, in this example, we're not saying, oh, it's like Breaking Bad because we want to mention that it's Breaking Bad as a popular show to Nick's point. It's more that the framework of that show, that narrative is the arc of the main character. That's the lead's perspective. It's Breaking Good. It's the opposite of Breaking Bad. And so Breaking Bad, because the lead's character's journey is so iconic, it's an easy shorthand to reverse that. Yeah. One of the other things that I like about the show and I think sets it apart from other such material is the the element of sort of like politics and machinations. You know, in that way, it has some kind of parallels to a Game of Thrones or even shows a little bit like uh, Rome or Succession. You know, there's so much kind of going on in this, this societal power structure and people kind of working their way up and down through these you know, power systems and everything that it's not all just swashbuckling and cannons firing and pirate fights on the streets you know yeah i think all the moving parts on that like political level definitely set it apart yeah i agree as well i will say that to your point about game of thrones and so forth that's another example where breaking bad and game of thrones and those huge shows i think the risk of using those as examples is that it waters down the originality of your show you know if you were to say it's breaking bad meets game of thrones i have no idea what that show is (laughs) it's very abstract but if you say the bad version again, it would be like Breaking Bad meets uh, Black Sails or whatever version of that. At least you get a better sense of the content as the tone. And so for the political uh, machination, Rome, for me, for example, gives a better understanding of how you want to approach that. And the reason why I say that is because Rome, to me, is that duality between the little people. Uh, you have uh, you follow uh, throughout the series uh, two soldiers in the Roman army. But conversely, you also follow the big people, you know, Caesar and his crew at the top. And so that contrast between the little people and the big people in a real historical context is much more present for me than something like Game of Thrones, which, you know, in my mind, it's a huge uh, heroic fantasy type show, which does have political machination, obviously, intrinsically because of the show that it is. But it doesn't necessarily convey for me personally what it means for your show, if that makes sense. Even a show like uh, Spartacus, Blood and Sand, if you guys saw that, I think as a, as a fun comp too, just because there is so much of the the down and dirty with the gladiators, but then there's also the owners and everything who are going above that. And there's a lot of uh, political machinations going on there as well. I don't know if Ben, you had the thought. 
Oh yeah, my thought is I should probably go watch those shows. I'm like, this all sounds good, but I haven't seen them, so I'm I'm taking you guys' word for it. That's fair enough. <laughs> for our listeners, you can see that we don't necessarily have the same references. I think that's important to note the fact that we bring these things up, and it, it's hard to be prescriptive in a general sense of saying, "Hey, this show is like this show, and this is these are the references you should tap into," because everyone has different references. At the point where the person doesn't understand your reference, you can still convey the imagery and the content and the characters of your show, and I think that's very important. Even if you've never seen Spartacus, it's important to explain why Spartacus is referenced, for example, or without saying, you know, Spartacus, but the version of that that exists in your show. And so, and the same holds true for Breaking Bad and all those other examples, it's just easier to say Breaking Bad because kind of everyone understands Breaking Bad now. But nonetheless, those things are just questions to ask yourself and to guide you in understanding your pilot in a better way than just, you know, writing it and understanding it that way, but much more holistically understanding where it fits within the paradigm of TV. And another thing I, I kind of want to add to this whole discussion is I think it is really useful to actually have these conversations and say these things out loud because I sort of have always subconsciously um, internalized these things, like what sets my script apart. But very rarely have I had the conversation and, and put it into words, which obviously is necessary for pitching and, and getting it out there. So it's helpful for me. And, and I'm sure there's other people that are in the same boat. Absolutely. And I know we've been uh, talking a lot about, you know, it's like this show meets that show and references of specific series, but the your pilot's unique value is not necessarily the content. Obviously, a lot of it is going to stem from the arcs you follow, the journey, the themes, the value you want to put out there, the characters, and obviously the story and the backdrop of that show. So all those things are hopefully unique to you. But it also ties back to another thing that's intrinsically unique about the, your pilot, which is yourself. And that's another aspect of the meta element of your pilot that is important to address. And that is how do you connect what you wrote with yourself? And we've discussed a lot on this podcast about the idea of branding yourself. We literally had an episode called Branding Yourself that was PD86. We also had a PT145, our paper scraps episodes, where we answered a bunch of questions there. And uh, in terms of the pitching process, we also had PT165, which was about crafting that personal pitch. So now that you have that idea of who you are as a person, as an author, or rather a screenwriter, one aspect that you can look at is how do you connect that script to your story? What does it say about you as a writer and vice versa? What do you have to say about the script that you wrote? Why did you write this sample? And so I'm curious to hear more. This is something that we talked all the way back in our very original episode with Ben, but I wanted to kind of hear more about Ben's thoughts on how the parking connects to your own portfolio, but also your own identity as a writer. And I'll just chime in quickly to frame this as well. You know, I think once you have the logline and the concept, that's just getting your foot in the door with somebody that's allowing them to say, okay, I'm going to read on from paragraph one of your email to paragraph two. I'm interested enough to get to this point, but then that's when you're going to have to sell them on who you are and why you can pull this off for them to want to go any further. So, yeah, this is something I touched on pretty heavily, I think, in my first solo episode. And it was something I thought about a lot after we spoke that very first time. And the thing that I kind of discovered as I started developing the character of Jean more was that we have very similar, you know, it's not necessarily a positive attribute, but our egos, we're ego-driven people. And we both really, I haven't fallen from any great height like he did, but the idea of establishing a legacy, and obviously I would want my legacy to be, you know, creating great shows or, or putting out great work into the world, whereas his is to build a quasi-evil empire. But I feel for that character, and there's a lot of me and him, I think. 
So that's really the most, that's really my personal connection to this story in particular. Yeah, I think it's often a tricky question for a lot of people because you sort of like, oh, I've got a great idea for a show and I'm going to write it and I'm going to put all these things into it. But a lot of the time we don't really consider why did I want to write this or how does it connect to me? And it can take a little bit of soul searching and thinking to kind of figure that out. But once you do, uh, it's very helpful. Yeah, definitely. A lot of it uh, does take self-work in a way and understanding yourself, what you stand for, et cetera, et cetera. And I definitely agree that it does help a lot with the writing of it especially if you understand why you are writing a certain piece of material, then you can translate that into the content, the themes, the values that you want to extrapolate in that script. And the same holds true when you're meeting an executive and they're going to be asking you, oh, why did you write this? The quote-unquote bad answer would be something like, well, I stumbled upon a Wikipedia article and I thought it would be a cool idea, so I just wrote it. I mean, that's fine, but it doesn't really excite the person in terms of why are you the person to write this piece of material, because anyone could have found that Wikipedia article. That doesn't mean it connects to you on a personal level. Another way to think about it is to not just look at that sample in regards to you as a person, but in regards to the other samples that you have the portfolio that you have. So how does that script or the sample connect to the other pilots or samples that you have? Is there some sort of through line, whether that's a theme, a value, something that you love to explore over and over again that can explain that sample and why you wrote it? Yeah, I mean, tonally, I think it's right in my wheelhouse of that sort of kind of gritty action that's uh, balanced out every once in a while with some levity. And I definitely, I mean, it's pretty obvious at this point in my writing that like I've got a thing for like anti-heroes. So because they just keep popping back up. All my heroes are have a little bit of an edge to them. So that's probably the two biggest through lines that I mean, you could look through my whole portfolio and that's those two things are gonna recur. Yeah, I I've also read a couple of your other scripts and everything, and it feels like there's definitely a I don't know if I'd say high concept is the word, but you do definitely have sort of a conceptual hook to each of your things as well that you can kind of, you know, elevator pitch to people and be like, oh, wow, that's a really interesting uh, idea. I'm curious to kind of see that explored. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I will say, especially when you're thinking about answering those questions and, and the answers you're giving to executives and so forth, it's always nice to tie it back to anecdotes and personal stories that the other person can relate to. And it doesn't have to be huge uh, emotional turmoil or anything like that. But even the little fact that you said, Ben, last time about how you love to have a signature weapon in all of your uh, scripts, that really stood out to me and uh, because it's relatively unique in a way. And if you can use that as one example, obviously that is not going to explain why you wrote a specific sample, but it's a little tidbit that can add to the specificity of you as a writer and uh, you writing those specific samples and tying it to why you're interested in writing those samples and why you have that signature material. And you mentioned, you know, living in a prop house and all those different things. So those little quirks, so to speak, to the material and yourself are very unique and definitely should be highlighted. Yeah, that's definitely a good one. And it's funny because I guess I had never really considered, I never really realized that I did that. I mean, I certainly do. But so I'm sure there's other stuff that I do that I just haven't really realized. And it takes a little bit of a stepping away from yourself and evaluating to be able to pick those things out. So I'll probably do more of that too. Yeah. Those kind of little stories and anecdotes, I think uh, go a long way in those kind of meetings. You know, whether you are able to do something with the project in that meeting or not, you're not just going to sell a script, you're selling a relationship in yourself as a writer uh, long-term. Absolutely. And uh, on that note, let's move on to our next section, which is what to do with that script. 
All right, so we've talked a bit about analyzing the meta of this crypto, how it fits within the ecosystem, within your own portfolio, and how it fits within your brand. But let's talk about, once you've figured out all those different things, what to actually do with that sample. And firstly, Ben, uh, we're really curious to hear more about what you have been doing with other scripts and what are your expectations at this point with the sample? You know, so far with pretty much everything else, it's just been entering contests, putting things on the blacklist. And the problem with that is that it starts to, it really adds up after a while monetarily. So, but yeah, and then querying managers and obviously submitting to uh, paper tees which so far has been the most successful endeavor. But yeah, that, I mean, it's really been contests, the blacklist, things like that. So I, I forgot what I was going to say. That's great. Well, that is great. And in fact, we'll be uh, digging a bit more into some of those strategies and thoughts. In this section, we're going to be taking a look at everything from uh, generating bus to using it for reps and staffing and selling. But we really want to make this section about reality as opposed to theory. For the past five years, we've been giving a lot of advice on this podcast about different uh, strategies of that nature. But here we want to look at practical ways and uh, specific ways of doing those things with the sample that Ben uh, sent us, obviously. And this time we can be a bit more prescriptive since usually we're talking about things in the vacuum almost. And this is a real project that you, our listeners, have followed. However, it should be noted that some of those very specific nuances may not necessarily apply to your own pilot. For example, if you have a half hour animated show, some of the advice about a one hour pilot show may not be applicable specifically, but the general advice is still relevant. Yeah. So the first thing we wanted to talk about, which is something you just touched on, Ben, is that idea of kind of generating heat or buzz around yourself as a writer or your particular scripts or a piece of material. So like you mentioned, these are things that could be uh, entering competitions, getting wins and placements in those competitions, uh, doing holding kind of table reads uh, when those are able to happen again, or even virtual table reads, events, things like that, placing on lists like the blacklist, the hit list, the blood list, the bitch list, all that sort of stuff. Even leveraging the fact that you were the mentorship winner on the Paper Team podcast for anyone that that actually holds currency with, I think can be a useful tool in your arsenal. And I think the thing about this is it is kind of like the level zero for people. It's it's accessible to everybody. Anyone can go to a website for competition, upload their script, pay a fee, and cross their fingers and hope. It's also, you know, as a result of that, perhaps the, the least effective of them, but it certainly can help a little bit in various ways, whether that's giving yourself the confidence, whether it's having something to put on your resume, whether it is a manager reading a script that happened to place in a thing. I guess the main issue with it is, is a bit of a lottery. It's a bit subjective and it's hard to reliably get a success from this. Yeah, this is one of those things that you can be very proactive about. It's a relatively easy way to gauge where you are at and how your scripts and content is being received, even if it's not objectively true. So for example, you could get a bad blacklist score, but also get a better placement at a different script competition or something like that. But you can still gauge where you are at. And if people respond to your material outside of your friend circle, outside of your mom saying how awesome that script is, one aspect to that is to understand which competitions may matter uh, to some extent. And uh, we've talked about that in prior episodes. I'll mention PT3. That was all about TV running comps and uh, PT160, where we discussed the script of readiness and uh, TV running contest. But all that is to say that when you're sending your script out, you should have an idea or at least get an idea of how good is that based on this specific contest or competition. Are these readers people that I value? Because you, obviously when you're submitting to Blacklist or those competitions, you don't necessarily know who those readers are going to be. So this is up to you to decide, is this going to hold any weight? 
And objectively speaking, if you can't decide whether, you know, you trust the opinion of those readers, look at other people around you, look at, you know, the industry as a whole. Does this competition hold weight if I were to place in that competition? Can I actually leverage those opportunities? And even if you cannot, then at least, at the very least, it gives you a better sense of the quality of that script and if anyone outside of those very specific people responded to it. Yeah. And this sort of stage is usually a level that applies mostly to aspiring writers and people early in their career. It's very rare for you to see an established showrunner or a working uh, professional writer submitting their latest pilot through to all the competitions because they probably already have a rep who can just put it out to the town or the goal of that competition might be to get a rep and they don't really need that anymore. So it is sort of a, a bit of an ephemeral kind of stage in people's career where it can be very useful. And there are certainly people who have gone on to get representation or have uh, their show optioned or get meetings with producers or whatever through this. But it does, depending on what stage of your career you're at and the further you get along, kind of uh, run out of usefulness eventually. And like you said, there's certainly a monetary component to it that uh, makes it a bit prohibitive to keep doing for every single thing you write all the time. Right. And uh, I'm actually curious, Ben, did you have thoughts on competitions or contests that you value or thought about entering? I try to stick with like the bigger ones, Launchpad, the pilot launch competition and Austin, things like that. Because if you're going to spend so much, you want at least the idea that if you do place well, if you get into the semifinals or the finals, that at least something will come of it. But I also like genre specific contests like ScreenCraft will do things that are just sci-fi or just fantasy. And I think it's easier to sometimes I feel like if you write genre stuff, I don't know. It feels like almost like people don't take it as seriously sometimes in the bigger contests. And maybe that's just me projecting, but I think there's plenty of decent contests out there, but it's just, it's so expensive if you want to try to hit too many of them. And have you previously had any sort of success with the competitions and the stuff you submitted out there? And has that led to anything? Yeah, I've had a couple scripts finish in as finalists in the ScreenCraft competitions. I been a second rounder at Austin. I mean, I've entered so many now for the last eight or nine years that I've got tons of semis and and quarter finalists. The only thing that really led to something though, was what I got. It was Strange California, the script that you guys read that, that got me here, that got an eight on the blacklist and got a lot of industry downloads. And that got me a, a meeting with a producer, a pretty high level producer. This is probably like three, two, three years ago, like right after I wrote Strange. And it kind of went nowhere. He was looking to write something based on a, a pre-existing book. But I've tried to keep in contact, but it hasn't really gotten anywhere. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's probably a common experience for a lot of people. And producers and production companies are using, say, the blacklist or something like that or a competition to find writers that are talented, that are earlier on in their careers who they might be able to start to establish a working relationship with. And perhaps they uh, have material that they want adapted or have an idea that they want written. And to be perfectly frank, sometimes they are trying to find people that they can, that are at a level where they don't have to pay them for development, but that they know that they're good enough to potentially pull it off and that it could lead to something in the future. That said, it's still always useful to build those relationships and to be putting yourself out there and getting that reputation around town as somebody who's up and coming and knows what they're doing. Right. I mean, you got to remember that this is a marathon, not a sprint. So when you're doing those competitions, the goal is to get multiple wins in a way and to leverage those wins to get to your own goals, whatever those goals are. And one of the most common goals through these competitions is to be repped, to have an agent or a manager by winning or placing those competitions. So let's look outside of the competition side, let's look at attracting reps. And obviously this is something we've talked about before. I'll mention TV Rep 101 for our new listeners. That was PT31. 
And a lot of the strategies that we will be uh, talking about here are essentially about identifying the who, where, why, and how, and executing on those ways of figuring out who the right people are, where they are at, why you want to reach out to them, and uh, how they can be uh, beneficial to you, and how you can actually reach out to them. So let's dig into attracting reps. Yeah, the, the best prize you could honestly win from any of these competitions or things you enter is finding a manager or an agent or someone like that who's going to represent you and help start to build your career out. And again, that's why competitions become less useful the further you get on in your career, because you're more likely to actually have an agent or have the relationships already. But yeah, essentially, this is the most preferable and best way to use a strong piece of material to your advantage if you don't have a rep is to get a rep. So as Alex hinted at, the first step to any of this, I think a lot of people just assume, oh, I just want to bombard my material out there and I'll sign with the first person who shows interest in me. And that can be very tempting because it's validating and because you can say, oh, I've got a manager, I've got an agent. But realistically, what you want to be doing is be very targeted in this. Understand and research what certain companies, say management companies, specialize in. Are they focused on animation? Are they focused on live action? Is it more of a comedy forward company? And in particular, the focus of particular agents or managers uh, within those companies. They might have a roster of entirely comedy clients, or they might be more of a genre sort of person. You can kind of find that out in various ways by looking up their bios, looking up interviews, and looking at their client list and seeing who are the writers that they rep and what shows do they have credits on. Right. In Ben's uh, case, uh, it could be about finding out if they rep some people from Spartacus or Black Sales or all those places. Now, one thing to keep in mind is you want to be at this stage relatively wide in terms of who you want to go after in terms of, you know, these companies are more genre in Ben's case, for example, or uh, more action driven and so forth, as opposed to saying this agent only reps this specific kind of show. Because sometimes it does happen if you look at certain shows the showrunner is a rep by a specific agency, for example, and most of the writers from that writer's room are going to be from that same agency. Uh, that happens more often than you think. So that's why it's important uh, very early on to be strategic about who and what company you want to be repped at. Now, the other thing to think about is to be realistic, especially if you are a new writer. You would think maybe, okay, I'm going to go to CA, WME, or those huge places, and uh, that's going to give me the most leverage. But in fact, you want to be specific and targeted. Uh, you want often to go to the smaller boutique agencies or mid-level companies where young and recently promoted agents and managers or even current coordinators or assistant, if you can get them, can hip pocket you and are willing to hear queries or are actively looking for new clients. And that's because those assistants and younger agents are hungrier to borrow you know, an industry term. They want people to make money for them in the short term and uh, to have that potential in the same way that they have that potential. They want to rise up in those ranks. So it's important to be strategic, not just on the larger scale of the company, but also who you want to go after. Yeah, I think that's definitely sort of the wheelhouse I'm going to be aiming for is those the up-and-comers or, or smaller boutique uh, management firms and agencies and I know that a lot of times in the trades, they'll say when a junior agent or an assistant is getting promoted to a junior agent, things like that. So I think that'll be another useful tool I'll try to utilize when I start querying with the Shadows of New Orleans. Yeah, absolutely. And I think going a little bit more granular than that, too, if there's any way you can try to understand even the current needs for a particular company or agent or manager's roster, say if you have a connection there, you know, somebody works in the mailroom or an assistant or whatever. I got my first agent in part because she was looking for more animation writers to add to her list. And if I had been, say, a one-hour drama writer, I'm, there might not have really been that opening. She might have been full up and happy with the, the current crop of people she had on her list at that point. 
you know, there's only so many people you can submit for the same jobs without it kind of uh, cannibalizing your own chances of success. So people like to have a good range of writers across a spectrum of things that they can submit them for. Right. And that's actually a combination of multiple factors. It's one uh, example is what Nick mentioned in terms of the genre that you are evolving in. If you are a half hour animation writer, as opposed to a one hour live action person, but it's also in terms of seniority. If they have a lot of lower level writers, they may not want another lower level writer. Maybe they want a mid-level writer. Or if they're mostly staffing high level APs, then actually they might not be looking for a lower level writer. So those are small distinctions that you got to be looking out for. And when you're doing your research, you can find that out by looking at their roster and talking to people, maybe their assistants know this information and so forth. Another thing to keep in mind is the content and uh, your brand as a writer. Even if they have uh, two animation writers, let's say, your background, what you're bringing to the writer's room may be completely different, uh, one person from the next. One person may be more of a BoJack Horseman kind of a writer who's uh, much more introspective and writes uh, relatively serious topics, but the other person might be more a children cartoon or something like that, where it's still animation, but it's a very different vibe and a uh, type of person that may write that content. Yeah, to use a sports metaphor for a second, you can kind of think about an agent or manager's roster a little bit like a football team or a basketball team. You've got the kind of heavyweight vets that they're paying uh, millions of dollars or perhaps are bringing in millions of dollars in the case of an agent who, you know, they know can knock it out of the park, but they're probably pretty busy. They're probably working on a bunch of shows already and they've got their stuff going for them. So they also want to have some mid-level people that they can submit when there are mid-level openings. They also want to have a crop of talented youngsters and rookies in the sports metaphor to start to develop and to be able to submit for perhaps those things that their mid-level and higher level writers aren't are already too busy for. Think about that in terms of what are you adding to the arsenal of this particular agent or manager? What can you bring to the table? How can they help sell you? And that all ties back in again to your kind of personal story and your brand of the material that you write and what you can be put up for. All right. So now that we've looked at the who, let's talk about the how. How are you going to get the, to those people? Uh, the first way is obviously through personal connections or personal recommendations. And that's often almost always the best way. If a client of an agent recommends you to their agent, then that agent is much likelier to read your material than any other kind of recommendation. Maybe uh, besides uh, their assistant potentially recommending it, but overall personal connections is how you get those reads. And in part, that could be through those competition wins. If you meet that uh, executive, that development person, who's not an agent, right? They're a development person. They might be able to recommend a rep, even if they might not be interested in developing your sample then and there, you can discuss okay, well, I know you really like my material and you really like my branding and, and me as a writer, can you help me out? Or do you feel you might know people who are interested in uh, someone like me? And they can recommend that your sample and you as a person to someone they might know. Yeah, for sure. And one funny thing I've kind of found about uh, asking somebody who's already with a rep to recommend you to their rep is that I think it's easier for those people if you're not the exact same kind of writer at the exact same kind of level with them, because then they would be adding somebody to the roster who is uh, directly going to compete for uh, the jobs that they would be putting up for. So they're perhaps not likely to uh, to throw you into that that mix as well, or you know even just the fact that the agent already has somebody that exactly fits that bill, which is them. So never ask anybody to kind of put you into a position where you'd be taking their job from them. But if it's a a lot of people who are writers' assistants, showrunners' assistants, get to know higher level and mid level writers that they're working with on shows. And, you know, perhaps they read their material and then that's kind of a really good opportunity for those people to recommend you to their agency or their company and their particular agent might be higher level, but they might recommend you to uh, one of the juniors who are kind of coming up in the world, that sort of thing. Exactly. And that's why it's important to get to know people, especially if you have the opportunity to be in a room 
to get to know the people at all the levels, not just the shorter, because the shorter may have weight, obviously, and may recommend you to certain agents, but the shorter only kind of knows their level. They don't really know the up and comer agents and the, the newer people. Again, you got to think about who you're targeting and why you're going after those people. And so that's why you got to kind of connect with everyone around you, including mid-level writers who may not necessarily have hiring power in terms of getting you that next writer's assistant position, but they can still know more about other aspects of this industry. And this is kind of one of the benefits of working on your network. And obviously in a pre-COVID era, this was a little easier in terms of being able to go to mixers and, and all of that sort of thing. And again, that's another reason why people are often saying, if you want to work in TV, you should move to LA and you should be around people in the industry because it's by getting to know these kinds of people and making friendships and genuine relationships with them uh, that these opportunities are going to present themselves just naturally. Yeah, networking is certainly, it seems to be the main way to break in. And it's definitely something I need to work on more. I always feel like I'm putting somebody out if I ask them to read my stuff. And I know that's something I just got to get over, but that's definitely something I'm going to have to improve about myself. Right. And it doesn't have to be necessarily, hey, do you mind reading my stuff? It can also just be, hey, let's connect. Let's learn new things about each other and what we've been up to and so forth. And then hopefully if you have an actual bond, then they should organically ask, can you send me that sample or something like that, especially if they're interested in that. And conversely, if you know, it doesn't have to be one to one thing where you'll be networking with agents to get an agent. Like I mentioned before, it could just be getting to know other people who are laterally in a different vertical in this industry than just agents. And through them liking you, they might recommend you to agents, for example. So there's other ways of approaching it where the way you should look at relationships and networking is more of a holistic perspective where it's more about the variety of the people that you know as opposed to digging into, I should know all the agents in town, for example. Yeah. I mean, even in my line of work, I have certain connections to the industry that could probably be beneficial. I always keep a very high wall kind of between my work self and my writing self, but maybe if maybe I just let it slip that I'm a writer a little bit more often with people and uh, add that into our, you know, the conversations we have every day. Definitely. I think that obviously there's a line between kind of pushing yourself as a writer and asking people to read your scripts and your job and that sort of thing. And then just casually mentioning it and having it come up in conversation. And, you know, if you're having a networking meeting with somebody, you don't have to expressly ask them, hey, can you read my script? You can just be, talk about like, you know, oh, yeah, so what have you been up to? Oh, I've been working on this pilot. I've been writing. It's about blah, blah, blah. And kind of throw that little hook out there. And if they're interested in hearing more about it, they'll be like, oh, cool. Tell me more about that. And then if they're interested in reading it, they'll be like, hey, yeah, I'd love to read that script that you said. You know, I think there's kind of an art to it sometimes. Absolutely. And that's definitely something that's impossible to be prescriptive about. It's up to you to figure out where you lie on that scale with that person and where your relationship is. Yeah, definitely. So outside of personal recommendations, obviously that's not easy for everybody to have, or, you know, you have sort of a limit to the, the amount of connections you have in the right places. There's always the option of querying particular reps, uh, cold queries, whatever it happens to be. If you can get an email intro from somebody, it's a mutual connection. That's even better. We've talked about this in a lot more depth in our networking 201 cold contact queries and etiquette, which is PT 121, but essentially just sending some emails out with a respectful kind of brief logline of your pilot and a little bio of yourself and seeing if they're interested to hear more can be a good way to just get a couple of replies, a little bit of attention. It's obviously a numbers game, but uh, it doesn't hurt. Absolutely. And that's why being strategic, again, we're, we're going back to the same themes here, but uh, being aware of who's actively looking out for uh, new writers and is hungrier and more open to getting those queries is very important. But the last way to go about it is to put yourself out there. And uh, this is something that Ben just mentioned, but you should not be afraid of putting yourself out there and ask. You can post on social media, Facebook, Twitter, your writer's group, 
people around you, let your, not just your family, but the people around you know your goals and asking if anyone has any recommendations or could refer you to people who do have those connections. This is something we talked about in PT75, which is all about putting yourself out there. But that's a strong tool that a lot of people underestimate. That's definitely, I think, the hardest thing to do. So hopefully this whole podcast experience, just putting myself out there and at this level uh, will help build some courage in that level too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've seen every now and then, Ben, we're friends on Facebook and I've seen that you share the, the paper team episodes and people comment and all that sort of thing. So I think that's a great start. And I think just keep doing stuff like that and just making it clear to people around, you know, it doesn't have to be, doesn't always have to lead to something. It's just sort of um, setting expectations with people and having them know your goals. Eventually when things come up and they hear about an opportunity or they know somebody, they might be able to just offer to make a connection, that sort of thing. Exactly. A large part of that is essentially keeping it alive, keeping the idea that, hey, I'm a writer, I'm looking for work or reps or whatever it is alive so that people know when that opportunity happens, they know, hey, they think Ben is looking for an agent or Ben is a writer who writes this kind of stuff and would be really cool to do this project with. All those things, it's about really keeping those relationships alive. And that includes with people you don't even know yet. And that's why social media is such a powerful tool. Yeah. Uh, there are people I've known for three, four five years in LA. And then just out of the blue, out of nowhere, I'll be working a particular job and there's a need for a certain kind of writer or graphic artist or whatever it happens to be. And if these people pop into my head because I know what they're about and I know what their goals are, I can go to them and I've been able to get people jobs fairly recently just because of that. So you never know when those things might pay off. And the last thing to note is you got to remember what we said earlier in this episode about connecting what you're saying to your own story. When you're introducing yourself, it needs to be coherent with the way you want that person to perceive you. And the short reason why that is, is because you want that person to very concisely understand what you're about so that if they recommend you to someone else, they can essentially parrot a version of what you're telling them. And so that's why you got to be clear about your own story and the way you're pitching yourself to people. All right. So the next thing to consider outside of getting a rep, so now whether you have one or not, is using this sample for either getting yourself staffed on a show or even potentially trying to sell the pilot itself somewhere. For more detailed information on this, uh, listeners can tune into our TV staffing versus TV selling episode on PT 182 for the sort of pros and cons of these different approaches. Obviously, you kind of want to try and do both, but take a listen to that episode if you want to hear more. Absolutely. And the first thing to talk about is uh, staffing or getting yourself staffed using the sample that you just wrote. And the first thing to keep in mind is you got to understand why this is something that's relevant to that other show that you want to strategically staff on. So for example, in this case, it's a pirate show. So obviously pirate drama shows are going to be interesting to staff on, but there aren't that many pirate shows on the air currently. So you got to look at other verticals and other kinds of shows that are akin to, in this case, the parking, other period piece other action-driven content, even maybe fantasy. Something like Blood and Treasure could be a recent contemporary show. It's a contemporary piece. It's not a pure piece, but it's a contemporary kind of action-adventure type show that would be a great fit for the parking, or rather vice versa. The parking would be a great fit for that kind of staffing position. And uh, those are discussions to be had with yourself and your own goals and your reps, obviously, and people around you. But you got to think about how that sample not just fits for yourself, but how it fits for that show you want to staff on. Yeah, I'm curious, Ben, have you considered any shows that are on TV right now that you would love to work on? And if this sample in particular would be a good sample for them? Yeah, let's see. 
Some stuff that I really love, like I've, I've referenced the boys a couple times. That would be a dream. I wonder if this pilot would be the one to send if I was going to submit to try to get staffed on that show. Just I don't know if it's humorous enough to kind of fit in that the boys vibe. There was a show I found on Netflix recently. I don't know if it's still on the air, but it's called Nightfall. It's about the Knights Templar and kind of the end of their their reign that I've been having a lot of fun watching. And it kind of fits in that same wheelhouse of action adventure with some political stuff going on. It's obviously a period piece. So that's something I feel like I could fit into. I just don't know if that show's still on the air or if it's just a running on Netflix now after it stopped. Yeah, I think that show specifically is, it might be an international production, but I think it was originally on the History Channel. So I think you've got, you found kind of a little niche here where I think any show kind of produced by the History Channel will be an awesome place to be at. If a Viking still existed, I think that would be a great example of a show that you could potentially look to staff where it really fits with that gritty, realistic, but also humorous vibe on some level, or humorous, take on the action and the peer piece genre. Yeah, I think something a lot of people don't consider when they're thinking about staffing is, you know, they might have just written one script, but they might have their favorite script or the one they like to submit for stuff. And that won't necessarily always be the best script to put out for a particular show if it's not the right fit. You know, you might have another script that perhaps, you know, wouldn't be your first choice necessarily, but it just takes all the boxes in terms of what you imagine these people are looking for in a particular show. Contrary to that, you might actually end up kind of getting in the door with something that you wouldn't think would be the perfect fit for a particular show because this might be a breath of fresh air to somebody who's just read 600 uh, historical period pieces and uh, you've put out something a little bit different from that that still demonstrates some of the same skills they're looking for in a room and that kind of thing. So there's a real strategy to kind of figuring out what it is that's going to get people's attention is going to prove that you're the right person for this show. And a lot of that will come down to what your agent or manager is uh, hearing from the showrunner and what their needs are in the room. Absolutely. And to that point, you got to emphasize the fact that when you're sending that sample, the showrunner is already looking for someone to bring in the room with a special set of scale that can fit that room. Uh, you use the, the baseball analogy in terms of the roster of an agent, but the same can be said for an actual writer's room with the showrunner. They're looking to have a cohesive room that features people completing one another, not just uh, 10 pirate experts. If it's a pirate show, for example, they might have one or two but the other ones are going to fit maybe more characters that are featuring or more tone people that are more relevant to the show or more dialogue people, whatever skill set that they are bringing into the room. And those are things that are very difficult to know in advance unless you know specifically the showrunner or the assistant or if your reps are really tapped into what they're looking for. And hopefully they are. That's why they should be your reps. But assuming they are, that's where they can guide you and say, well, this sample may not literally be the same content. It may not be, you know, if you were stepping on a pirate show, instinctively, you might think, oh, a pirate sample is great. But if it is kind of the same show, that might be dangerous because the show owner knows inside and out the kind of pirate show they want to build. It might be completely different than the pirate show you're sending. And so even though they're both pirate shows, they could be completely different tonally, structurally, narratively, character-wise, et cetera, et cetera. So those are also things to keep in mind. Yeah, that makes sense because it's almost like if you're aiming at the same target and in the showrunner's opinion, you totally miss the mark, you know, that's way worse than just having something that's a wholly separate idea, but the execution isn't similar. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense what you're saying. All right. So outside of um, staffing on a show, which, you know, is obviously easier if you do have a rep, we can put you out for it. Or if you have your own personal connections, you've obviously written this original pilot as a vision for a show that uh, could go to air and could be produced. So let's talk a little bit about the options and avenues for potentially selling the show and getting it made. So this is going to be things like 
putting it in front of production companies, producers, uh, getting it to studios and networks, getting attachments to the series to try and move it forward. The first step that I often like to do, both for you know just research purposes and uh, practical kind of purposes, is to go to something like IMDb Pro. You can get a free week or two trial if you need to. And then look up all these shows with a similar kind of tone or feel or sensibility to the one that you've just written. And then find out who made them. So that's the producers, the production company, the showrunners, anyone like that who perhaps has a company that can and is looking for new material in that vein. You know, obviously you don't want to try and sell the exact same thing as Breaking Bad to the people who made Breaking Bad because they've already done it. But you might want to sell something in that same wheelhouse because they like to do a gritty, dramatic kind of uh, pieces. And so you have something like that that would fit with their mandate. Sometimes there will be direct contact emails or email formats that you can kind of guess (laughs) somebody's email off of that, whether it's a general info or reception email or the direct email of an executive or an assistant or a coordinator. Often there won't be uh, that same thing available on there, but that's where your network and your connections come in, finding people that you know who know people there and can make that introduction, whether directly about the project or more of a kind of get to know you where it can come up naturally. Right. And that's part of the strategy you're going to go after in terms of selling that show. And you can look at actually existing shows. So for example, in Ben's case, uh, I was looking up information on Vikings because Vikings seems like the kind of show that could fit or the people that made Vikings could fit within the lineage of the parking. And obviously we mentioned the History Channel before, but you can also look at the production companies that produced Vikings and then reach out to those people or even executives and so forth and uh, and see if uh, they would be interested in partnering with you or attaching themselves to the project. And obviously it doesn't have to be, hey, I've got this script, do you want to partner? It's more about building relationships and bridges to get to that point. But those are things to keep in mind in terms of actively looking for that information and being strategic about it. Uh, now, Nick mentioned specifically using IMDb Pro. I will mention uh, before I go on to the next thing that uh, you can use the same idea for finding your reps and finding your agents. When we talked earlier about digging into the roster of such and such a person, uh, that is also a tool that you can use for that. But even using IMDb Pro and finding information on productions and so forth can be useful, repped or loan. Uh, now, obviously, we just mentioned if you're alone, all the things you can do with it. But even if you have reps, they can leverage that information. If you give them a specific targeted list of these other people I think would be amazing to meet at and get the show developed. At worst case, you just get general meetings there. Worst case, you have that relationship that's being built, even if they're not interested. But uh, the best case is obviously they want to work with you and so forth long term. But the fact that you can use those reps to reach out to those people directly on your behalf gives or adds a level of legitimacy that may not exist if you are reaching out to those people directly. And they can use, obviously, their own relationships with those people to add an element to the table. Yeah, so a really quick example, I just typed Black Sales into IMDb because we've been talking about that. And I looked it up, and the production company that made that is called Platinum Dunes. Now, that's Michael Bay's production company, and that makes sense because, uh, obviously, he makes big action movies. And so the kind of TV content that his company is looking for is probably pretty similar. Big kind of action set pieces, epic worlds, all of that sort of stuff. So... If you're then putting together your list and you're thinking, yes, this would be a good fit for this show because there are these similarities, then that's one place you might try to target. And so you might find out, well, who are the, who's the director of development? Who's the coordinator there? That sort of thing. How can I get an inroad to here and have them kind of consider my stuff, whether that's to actually make your show or not, or whether it's to be considered for future shows they make that are in that vein or develop IP that they already have there and they need somebody to kind of come on board to. Right. I will mention this specific case that Black Sales may be sort of a parallel show to Parking, so that might be a good idea to get the sense of those people and build those relationships. 
But that's why I brought up Vikings, which in my mind is more a different kind of show, but still similar to the parking that isn't literally about pirates. And so uh, that's another thing to keep in mind that we sort of mentioned before, uh, that the production companies and the people you want to reach out to, it's great to find people who have the same affinity to the material you are writing. But the if they already have the same credit, essentially, from the pilot that you're writing or the show you want to sell, it might be interesting to meet with them, but it might not be the right fit for that specific material. Yeah, I mean, maybe the people that sent, that uh, did Black Sails, that's something maybe they'd like to read Strange, because obviously <laughs> you guys liked it enough to give me this opportunity, so who knows. But um, yeah, this whole discussion is interesting, because I've never really tried reaching out to production companies at all in the past. It's always been reps. So I think this is another angle, and it gives me another av- avenue to um, explore. Yeah, for sure. And obviously it's easier to do with reps because they have that legitimacy and a lot of production companies might just ignore query emails or whatever. But again, that's where kind of the personal connections come in and it doesn't hurt to try it, to get yourself in, in front of people or put that stuff out there because you never know who might be, you know, a young and hungry assistant or coordinator who wants to find some uh, diamond in the rough material that they can bring to their boss and get promoted because of that. And further to that, I think it's important to this whole process to understand that the chances of actually writing a pilot and selling it and getting it made are slim, especially the earlier you are in your career and with your credits and your reputation. It's much more common for people who already uh, have worked in a writer's room for many years and who understand how to run a show and that sort of thing to be able to sell these things. Their chances of success are obviously a lot higher, Um, but there are multiple levels of success that you can have with this process. It's not the be all and end all is not selling a show and being a creator as awesome as that would be. Absolutely. And the first thing, the first level of that success is something uh, we mentioned moments ago that even if you're not getting something out of it in terms of a produced show that sells, you at least have that relationship. You can potentially make fans with those producers, with those executives around town, the people who actually read your sample and liked you. They, uh, you got a meeting out of it. And so even though it didn't lead to a sale necessarily, the fact that you have that conversation, that you have that even general meeting is a win. Now, if you're a J.J. Abrams, uh, that is not necessarily a huge win. But if you're just starting out and you're trying to get your foot in the door, that is immediately a huge win. That's because even though they can't make it, they should remember you, hopefully, if you've made a good impression. And uh, taking that general meeting can always, or at least often, lead to other partnerships and other relationships. And even if it doesn't lead to anything concrete in terms of selling the show to that specific production company, as we mentioned, they can potentially recommend you or your show to other people. And so that's how the whole ecosystem works. It's not just one person, it's a win or lose. It's, oh, this is kind of a loss in terms of the selling of the show part, but we're building a relationship that is going to get me to the next bridge and the next bridge and the next bridge. Yeah. So Ben, have you had any success with getting general meetings off of your material being put out into the world? Uh, Just the one from the blacklist. And then actually a very small production company. And this came about through some connections I had um, at work. Strange was actually optioned for quite a while with a very small production company. And I think the company went under and I just sort of never, it just sort of fizzled away. And I reached out to the producer recently because the option only expired sometime in the last six months or so, I, I think. And her, the producer who originally optioned it, her email had changed. So I have no idea what happened there, but yeah, I've had a little bit of success getting out there, but, uh, certainly like to have some more. Yeah, that can either be a positive or a negative. If that uh, exec has moved on to another company, you can continue that relationship there because it's about you know making connections with people rather than uh, institutions necessarily. Absolutely. And to that idea, I mean, the fact that you had that show optioned 
can be another way to leverage your other aspects of your career. So for example, the fact that you option it at a specific place can help you out in terms of staffing. When you're taking those meetings, you can use the fact that, hey, I've got pilots option and so forth and meet reps and uh, concretize your relationship with the rep by saying, hey, I've got this show that's being optioned. I would love to have you on my team and make this a reality or help uh, or getting your help to getting staffed and so forth. And so those little wins can quickly add up if you use them. Obviously, a lot of it is timing and so forth, but you cannot underestimate the power of everything and the power of perception, and especially in those little wins. Yeah. One of the first things, once you actually get a manager, an agent that they will ask for from you is a list of your fans, essentially a list of people that you have met with, people who have read your stuff, people who like what you're doing. And so they can kind of then say, all right, great. You already know these people here. Where can I fill in those gaps? Where can I help other people to meet you? And how can I follow up with those people and send more material to them the next time you have something that goes out to the town? All right. So outside of making fans around town, you could get to that next level of success with your material, which is having a place option or develop the show. Like you just said, you got an option on Strange at one point, which is awesome. So very often at this stage of your career, it will be an unpaid option or unpaid development. It's not ideal, but often you don't really get a choice and it could be a good way to develop a relationship with someone if you don't have any better options. Excuse the pun. So whether this is a shopping agreement or an actual option of the material, whether it's sort of paying you for the rights to it for a certain amount of time or not paying you as the case may be, if you're more experienced or have leverage like a great rep or multiple places that want it, then you can get paid a certain amount for them to have an option for six months or a year or two years or even outright purchase the material, but that's kind of rarer or get paid to uh, develop that material a little bit further. The smaller down the scale you are in terms of producers and production companies, the less common that is that they're actually going to pay for development. A lot of these are pretty small shingles with a couple of uh, executives, or it might be somebody's producer has their own little pod, and so they have one person working for them. They just don't have it in their budget to pay writers to develop things as much as uh, they probably should. It's just the reality. But this exec or producer will want to work on the project with you, perhaps give you their notes in the script to incorporate, get it to a place they're happy with, make it better. Maybe they'll help you uh, put together a pitch and or a Bible. And so the value you're ultimately getting out of this is improving your project, making it better, putting it in a place where it is perhaps more likely to sell. And then they can also use their contacts at studios and networks to gauge interest in it. Maybe they'll take it out to a pitch together with you if people seem interested. So you can get a lot of value out of that process, even if it's not monetary just kind of to give you an idea, they might just start with a phone call to somebody and a little elevator pitch of the project to gauge their interest. They might send them a one-sheeter. They might send the whole script over. And this place may want to hear a full series pitch from you, that sort of thing. So that's kind of how that tends to go on the producer and production company level. Right. And uh, Ben, assuming you're not under any NDA, can you speak more to that process of getting your pilot option? How much content did they want? Uh, How deep into the woods did it happen? Were you paid or compensated in any way? How did that whole process work for your pilot? Sure. Yeah. It was just the initial option. It was fairly low uh, amount, but I think it covered, I think the option was for 18 months. They had it for quite a while. In that time, I they brought on another writer and we kind of pitched ideas back and forth and started a Bible. And then at some point, the partnership left, it was just no longer involved with the project. And then from there, I kind of, I tried to basically ax as many ideas that were both of ours to avoid anything that would be messy. And just then I worked on a Bible, came with a Bible for Strange, California. That was all unpaid. And then I was just waiting for the next steps that sort of never materialized. Yeah. And I think that's probably a common experience for a lot of people is you put a lot of development work into it and then nothing ends up happening. Unfortunately, that's the reality of the industry sometimes. 
It's interesting them bringing in another writer. I feel like that's more common for like features and stuff, unless this was perhaps a a writer with more credits in TV who they wanted to attach to the project and could show run it or that sort of thing. So I think you're smart to pull out anything that was created by that other writer because you don't want to run into any issues with chain of title and who actually created what in this thing and just making sure that you still own all the rights to your project so that one day down the road when you do sell it somewhere, no one's trying to sue you and and claim that they actually wrote that instead. Yeah, and it's always important to get things at writing in terms of what are the deliverables that are expected? What is the compensation for those deliverables? Who owns the rights to those deliverables? And uh, anything in between. And that's in part why, and we're going to go to the next one in a second, but that's in part why I'm usually against leaving leave behinds, especially for lower level writers and so forth, because that's the little leverage that you have. You're not really compensated a lot at that level. And so if you're just giving away the very little thing that is about the execution, which does include leave behinds and bibles and so forth, then it diminishes, it waters down that leverage that you have, the content that you have a little bit, at least if you're not compensated for those. And so that's why you got to make sure at every step of the way that all of those deliverables are concretized in specific ways under a contract. Yeah, definitely. I don't remember us ever really having any paperwork outside of the initial option. So I don't even know what the standing is with the stuff I developed with that other writer, but I assume it's all just gone in the ether. Yeah. I mean, it is really tricky to do it retroactively, which is why it's important to do it proactively and before that. And on that, let's look at the next level of success that you could have with that sample of that show. And that is that you actually get to sell it into development at a studio or, or network. And hopefully that, you know, that's going to be a more legitimate place. But in that case, you can kind of repeat the steps that we mentioned before except for different executives and so forth, who are kind of aiming to get that script to a place that is strong enough for it to be actually produced into a pilot. Uh, Now, this is another case where, as I mentioned before, you gotta be very specific about what is expected of you. And uh, this is, especially if it's an actual studio network, the part where you have to be compensated at every step of the way, including, for example, an outline stage or including a Bible pitch or something like that. Those are things that fall under WGA guidelines. And so at the very least, you should be getting minimum, even though they may not be signatories, you should look out and be an advocate for yourself in your own writing. Yeah, so once you get it to an actual legitimate studio or network like this, and they're interested in developing something, this is where there actually is money and uh, should always be money for the work that you are doing. Even if you have already written the script completely happy with it and all that sort of thing, they should be paying a decent amount of money to option that from you in order to uh, make it into a pilot. And you should be having these sort of future agreements of if it does become a pilot, then I'm entitled to this much compensation when it's produced. I get this much backend points on the show. I'm locked into the series. All of that kind of thing is really important to consider so that you're not just kind of jumping at the first opportunity and perhaps being ripped off in the long term if this show does become successful. Right. And if you are at a place where you don't have a rep, and by rep, I also include, by the way, entertainment lawyers, this is the part where you should be getting one. And usually, especially if you're very targeted and know you know which lawyer to get or uh, which agent you want to try to get or manager and so forth. Well, maybe not manager, but at least agent and, and lawyers. You can go to them and say, hey, I've got basically money on the table. Do you want 10% of that for helping me navigate you know, this uh, quagmire of a contract? Not in so many words, but that's essentially the transaction and relationship building that you're making here. And so that's why it's important to advocate yourself and be proactive about those things before you sign anything, uh, because the studios and networks have that experience. They have the money, hopefully, but they definitely have that experience over you. And so 
you should always uh, be protecting yourself and your writing and not necessarily copywriting it or anything like that because people don't steal ideas. But in terms of getting paid for specific deliverables, this is the place where you need to have someone on your side who understands the mechanics of it better than yourself. Yeah, next time I get in that situation, which hopefully is sooner rather than later, I definitely want to have some reps on my side because even when I was going through it, I knew I was taking a calculated risk and possibly getting in over my head, but uh, I really wanted to get my foot in the door. So I went for it and luckily uh, nothing bad happened, but really nothing good happened either. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, the further people get along in their careers and their experiences, writers, uh, the less risks they're willing to take, the less time they're willing to put towards sort of unpaid options or development or things like that. So it's always just about what you think the the risk is in, in return for the reward. Right. And that risk is only for yourself to figure out. And part of it is trying to get the safety and understanding of, okay, if I'm getting the work or if I'm doing the work for free for these people or this company and so forth, at least I get X out of it. At least I get a credit out of it that again, let me to something else. So at least I get the relationship with this showrunner maybe who's a really accredited and has weight with this other studio. Whatever version of that win that you get, you should be uh, getting that win, even if you're not getting compensated. So that's why to me, compensation isn't necessarily money. Obviously, that's a huge part of it. But you can get other lateral wins within that relationship than just, oh, this show is produced and it's binary, yes or no. Yeah, I think you can kind of think about it in a way of your time is worth money. And uh, if you're not making money from this, then you are essentially losing money the more time you put towards it and not something that could be making you money. So, you know, if you end up sinking 200 hours of work into something in particular, you need to ask yourself, would I pay this much money to have this particular opportunity and, and weigh up whether you think it's worth it or not? especially at that earlier stages with producers and production companies that may not be compensating you. Absolutely. And to that point, you should, and on that note, you should consider yourself above minimum wage as opposed to saying, hey, I'm going to work 60 hours a week on this script at minimum wage. Is that really a fair metric? You know, it should be closer to something like a WGA minimum. Those are the amounts you should be looking towards as opposed to minimum wage or anything like that. All right. So the, the last stage of, I guess, success with uh, potentially selling a pilot and putting it out there you know, there's always the risk it gets stuck in what they call development hell for a number of cycles. You know, you go back and forth, you get more notes from the network, they pick up different pilots instead, but yours is still sitting in there waiting for maybe the next season, hoping it will go through. And it might just kind of fall out of favor. The option might expire. It might go into what they call turnaround and you know, somewhere else might want to pick it up, whatever it happens to be. But if you're very lucky, they may give you the vaunted green light and shoot the pilot. They're actually going to take a crew and uh, hire some actors and all that sort of thing, and go and create this thing that you spent so long writing, which is obviously the dream. Then after that, the network has to like that pilot enough to pick it up to series. They're shooting maybe a dozen pilots, and they're picking up three or four or five of them to series. So it depends on the network and, and what they're ordering and the craziness these days. But so you know, even if you happen to get your thing turned into a completely shot pilot that's filmed and you can sit down and watch it, there's no guarantee it becomes a series. But if it does, then congrats, you've sold a show. You're now creator, you're probably on board the writing staff as an EP or co-EP. You're very likely paired up with an experienced showrunner. And then you just have to do your best to make sure you get uh, more than one season from there. But those are the kind of levels of success which could happen from taking a pilot out to sell. Right. I will mention that before this step, more than likely, they will bring the studio, the network, or even sometimes yourself will bring a more experienced showrunner, especially if you're a more nascent kind of writer. It's uh, pretty much impossible that you'll be the only quote-unquote EP on that show they will want an actual showrunner with experience on that show. And uh, during the development stage, that is when that relationship, in my mind, can a lot of times make or break a pilot. That's why I always advocate for people to 
bring in their own genres or build those relationships and try to get attachments that way before involving a studio network. Now, if you're able to get a studio network to buy that project, then obviously they have people that they prefer to work with. And so they'll usually bring those people on. But either way, that's a relationship you got to navigate and be aware of. And on that note, as we mentioned at the top, uh, no matter what level you end up in, any of those things is a success, whether that's uh, making executives or producers fans of yours and getting general meetings around town or actually selling that show and uh, getting paid, hopefully. Even just putting that material out there, getting that experience in this whole rodeo is amazing. And you got to bear in mind that ultimately it's a numbers game and it does require persistence, luck, and uh, obviously the right timing for all those things to work out. Yeah, exactly. There are very experienced, successful writers out there who have sold literally dozens of pilots, had a lot of them shot, and uh, none of them have ever been picked up to series or things just haven't kind of gone right for them. So while (laughs) to us, that's like, oh my God, I would love to do that to achieve that level of success. To them, they're sitting there thinking, oh, I've never even gotten a show off the ground. I'm a failure sort of thing. So, you know, temper your expectations, do your best and realize that uh, success is relative. You know, this is the life of a TV writer for better or for worse. Uh, Welcome to the, the roller coaster. Uh, well, one last thing to mention in terms of what to do with a pilot uh, besides the staffing, selling, getting reps, and uh, wins the competition is just looking at other uses of that sample. And one of those is uh, something that Ben mentioned last time, which is the idea of uh, building a writing group. And uh, a great way to do that is by having samples. And usually when you create a writing group, people often say, hey, can you send me a sample to kind of see if we are like-minded people, maybe not from the same genre or whatever, but at least from the writing perspective. Do we want to write the same way or in the same group of people? And so having a sample to build that is a great way. And so Ben, I'd love to learn more about your own process of building that writing group or what you're looking for and so forth. Yeah. So last time we spoke, I, I talked about how and I think even earlier on this episode, I mentioned that I, I've never really received feedback during the process. And yeah, I'm, I haven't really done too much looking yet. I'm still kind of focused on just like wrapping this thing up. But I think it would be great. Maybe if there's some paper team listeners and we can get something going, maybe we can connect on the Facebook page. But it would be great to have some other listeners to bounce ideas off of. Exactly. I mean, you never know what's going to come out of uh, writing a pilot. Uh, just friends of yours reading it and enjoying it can be its kind of own reward or, yeah, like putting together a writer's group. And if there are any listeners out there who are wanting, I think we actually did have a group of people who met at one of our mixers and then later formed a writer's group, which is awesome. And um, we got to meet them again at one of the more recent in-person mixers that uh, was able to happen before COVID struck. So if there are other people out there who are wanting to do that and put together things, shoot us an email at ask at paperteam.co and maybe we can help connect some folks who who want to do that, or if you just have any thoughts on this whole process or episode, as always, uh, shoot us an email at askatpaperdeam.co. Great. And on that note, Ben, uh, before we close things out, do you have any final thoughts about the mentorship process or any other thing? Yeah, I think just the big thing for me is, and I've said it now, I sound like a broken record, but how uh, I'm kind of, I'm a shy guy and I think a lot of other writers are. And so it was big for me to put myself out there like this. And, and I just, it's been a great experience. So I hope if there's other writers that feel the way that I do, don't be afraid to put yourself out there, guys, because it could have uh, some really, it could be fun and, and you can get some great stuff out of it. And I just want to thank you too for all the great notes and it's been a good time. Yeah, likewise. We've had fun and hopefully it's been helpful. Definitely. Well, on that note, uh, before we go, don't forget that we are on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, as all the other ones of uh, Ben's uh, Mentorship, 
please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You will get access to our Paper Patron podcast, as well as cheat sheets and a bunch of more stuff. So get on this at paperteam.co slash Patreon. And so we can keep producing a great show like this one for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. And thank you to Ben for all of his hard work over this mentorship process. It's been really great. Thank you, guys. It it really has been. Thank you. And uh, you can get all the show notes for this episode at uh, paperteam.co slash 206. As always, I'm on Twitter at tvcalling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Ben? Um, No, don't worry about me. Well, if you have any thoughts, feedback about this mentorship process, or you are interested in Ben's uh, new uh, upcoming writers group, you can always send questions and uh, information at ask at paperteam.co. We'll see you next week. We'll see you then.